John chapter 20. We're going to begin with verse 1. We read, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Again, we've mentioned this on numerous occasions. This is our author, John. And she said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Famed American novelist Ernest Hemingway once observed that all stories, if continued far enough, end in death. And he is no true storyteller who would keep that from you. In many ways, John 19 ends where most every other grand tragedy concludes, with the death of the protagonist. Jesus, John 19, has died. He's died on a cross, been crucified. And then once removed from the tree, we have him being laid in the tomb by, yes, loving disciples, but laid in a tomb nonetheless. As John 19 concludes, the curtain drops. The story seems to end. And yet, though the park hands have gone dark and cooled, and the activities of the stage remain hidden from view, it's strange, you think, that, well, the house lights haven't been raised to aid the audience with their exit. The play's clearly over, you think to yourself. What's with the delay? Well, to your surprise, a few minutes pass. And the curtain abruptly rises again onto that same garden scene it had closed with. Was this an accident? The darkened theater is quickly illuminated. There's more to the story, you wonder? The actors reemerge stage left, and it doesn't take very long for you to realize that this particular drama takes an unexpected twist. As a matter of fact, this is no tragedy at all. Jesus has risen from the dead. Personally, I love the way Pastor Joe Foch introduces John 20. He calls it the chapter beyond where all other biographies end. You see, no story based in humanism continues its narrative beyond the death of its central character. Upon death, the biography of a man or woman's life typically ceases. And yet, this is not the case with the story of the man from Nazareth, Jesus Christ. As has been his M.O. throughout his gospel, John, writing years later, avoids repeating things that the other three gospel authors have thoroughly covered, focusing his attention on fresh insight and new details. Since this is the case, let me just take a minute and harmonize John's narrative with those found in Matthew 28, verses 1 through 8, Luke 24, verses 1 through 11, and Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. In doing so, I hope that you'll get a complete picture of events, the events that occur this first Sunday morning. Let me read it for you. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, very early in the morning when the sun had risen, again, we're harmonizing all the accounts, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, that's Jesus' mother, and the other women with them, these are all the women that were at the cross, they came to the tomb 
bringing the spices which they had prepared, that they might come and anoint Jesus. And as they're making their way to the tomb, they're saying amongst themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? No doubt the stone was heavy. took two men to put it in place. It was around two tons. But we're told that, behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away from the door, for it was very large. Now, it's at this point, keep in mind, that Mary Magdalene runs to get Peter and John. We continue. Now, the angel sat on top of the stone. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards, again, remember, there's 16 Roman guards keeping watch, protecting the tomb from intruders. They shook with fear of him and became like dead men, frozen in place. But the angel answered, and he speaks to the women. He says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where the Lord lay. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, for he is risen. As he said to you when he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rises again. And they remembered his words. The angel then says, Go quickly. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will find him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly and fled from, from the tomb with great fear and joy. And they ran to bring his disciples' word and to all the rest. Now, while that's happening, don't forget Mary Magdalene has left the garden. Likely, she's left the garden before the angel declared he is risen. We'll, we'll see this play itself out in Mary's story in particular. She leaves to run and get Peter and John. So as you're kind of playing this scene out, they're making their way to the tomb. They see up in the distance a commotion, an earthquake. Something's happening. The stone's rolled away. I can see Jesus' mom, Mary, turning to Magdalene and saying, "Hun, go get the boys. And so she, she turns and she runs off. She misses the exchange. Which is, again, why we're given this particular story. Now, verses 3 and 4. Peter, therefore, went out. And the other disciple, again, this is John, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. In Mark chapter 16, verse 9, you'll read how Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. But in Matthew 28, verse 9, it's recorded how as this original group of women go to tell the disciples that Jesus then met them saying, Rejoice! So they came and, and they held his feet and they worshipped him. Now, it's a shame, but there are some that have tried to make this a discrepancy when it really shouldn't be. Mary Magdalene, the Bible says it's clear Jesus appeared to her first, but the other women, it seems... Get an appearance before her. How does this play together? As to the flow of events, this is how I see it. I think the scriptures present. Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John. 
They're on the way back to the garden from a location we don't know where. As the women are having this exchange with the angels, it's likely MP and J then arrive at the tomb as the women are departing from different routes. Their paths don't cross. Peter and John, they come and go, as we'll see. And then Jesus reveals himself to Mary Magdalene in the garden at the tomb before then appearing to the women who are probably in close proximity. Now, before we get too far into the story, let me make two quick observations about verses 3 and 4 that I find interesting. What we'll see later, all of the disciples gathered together in an upper room. There is no evidence which substantiates the belief that these 11 men had a rendezvous beforehand, sometime during the three days Jesus was in the tomb. In fact, in the very first instance, we see the men together, Thomas is oddly absent from the gathering. In fact, our text is clear. Mary Magdalene ran from the tomb to do what? To inform Peter and John that the body of Jesus had gone missing. Logically, the implications are that those two men are not with the others. You can imagine if they had been, they all would have wanted to go and check things out for themselves. Now, what makes that fascinating to me is that it tells us at some point over the last two days, John has done something important. At some point, John goes and he seeks out his friend, Peter. Now, the last time we saw Peter was in John 18, verse 27. Not a shining moment for Peter. He had just denied Jesus for the third time. The rooster crowed, his eyes met the Lord, and he runs off weeping. During Jesus' trial before Pilate and his trial before Herod, the scourging, crucifixion, and even Jesus' burial, Peter has, in, has been MIA. We have no idea where he was, where he went, where he goes. Though John remained at the cross for the duration of the crucifixion, at some point, he intentionally seeks out his friend. Simon Peter. Now, now, we know that John doesn't console Peter with hope of resurrection. At this point, neither men, neither of these two men had any belief that that was going to happen. And yet the fact remains that John refused to leave Peter alone with his tears. Yeah, that's true friendship. I want a friend like that. Uh, Peter had blown it. He had failed epically. His tears, mind you, well-earned and deserved. His weeping was warranted. Peter's pride and his ego had been his downfall. I'm sure Peter wanted to be left alone. Don't you? With similar failure. But John would have none of that. Well, we have recorded nothing of what was said between these two men. I'm sure the fact that John cared enough to find him, to seek for him, to sit with him, was more than enough. I don't want to beat the point into the ground other than just to say that friends don't let friends weep alone, even when they deserve it. The second observation that I want to point out is the motivation 
now behind Peter and John's actions. Mary Magdalene brings them word. They jump up. They immediately run to the tomb. Look back at verse 2. Mary comes, and this is what she says. This is what motivates them to run quickly to the tomb. She tells them they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. That's, that's the, the knowledge. Now, aside from the fact that we have no idea who they was in reference to, the Romans, the Jewish leaders, we, we don't know. It's not defined for us. These two men hurry to the tomb. Why? Because they believe that something nefarious has occurred. Again, resurrection is still the furthest thing from their minds. Well, verse 5, and he, John, again, remember, John outruns old Peter. He gets there first, he stoops down, he looks in, and he sees the linen cloths lying there. Yet, he did not go in. John likely doesn't want to disturb anything until Peter has arrived. So Peter came, Simon Peter. Following John, he goes into the tomb. He doesn't wait at all. And he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had come to the tomb first, I love how John keeps repeating that. You know, I I outran the old goat. He then also goes in and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not know the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. In these verses, we are given a unique presentation of discovery through the complexity of really three different Greek words we have sadly translated into one English word, the word saw. In verse 5, upon arriving at the tomb, we're told John, looking in, note, saw the linen clothes lying there. Now, the Greek word for saw is blepo in this instance. It means to perceive with the eyes. John, he's looking in, he's stooping down. It's from a distance. He's examining the scene. This is what the word means. And he notices that there's something abnormal. But he's not going to inspect it, choosing to wait for Peter. This first word. Verse 6, we have Peter finally catching up. He goes into the tomb, and then we read how he saw the linen clothes lying there. Totally different word in the Greek. This word is theorio. It means to attentively or mentally consider. From the Greek, we actually get the English word theorize. Now, no, Peter is doing more than just looking at the linen clothes. He's looking with the intent of trying to figure out, trying to make sense of what he's seeing. What is he seeing? This description of the linen clothes lying there, but the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but instead being folded together at a place by itself. This is odd, to say the least. The picture that John is painting is one that implies on the surface that the body of Jesus had simply evaporated, leaving behind the linen clothes in one place in their natural position, and the handkerchief or the shroud that was over his face in another folded by itself. Very peculiar. As Peter and John are examining this particular scene, they could conclude right from the bat that the body hadn't been stolen. That wouldn't make any sense at all, right? 
I mean, why would you steal a body but leave behind the burial cloths? Ridiculous. Doesn't make any sense. The second weird oddity is how would you remove the body from the burial cloths without disturbing the burial cloths? First, why would you take the body without them? If you were going to, this doesn't make any sense either. Why they're laid out the way that they are. It's all strange. Finally, verse 8, John, he finally goes into the tomb, right? And we're told that he saw and believed. The Greek word for saw, in this instance, it's a third word. Edio. It means to know or to understand, to grasp. Because of the unique positioning of the linen claws and, and the, the missing body itself, Peter is mulling this stuff over, trying to come up with a theory. John, though? Oh, he's convinced. Convinced of what? That Jesus had risen. John, in this moment, is letting us know that he had enough evidence to know and to believe by what he saw. Now, the reason this detail is given to us so many years after the fact centers on the reality that John's audience, the audience that John is writing to in his day, is made up of people. People reading the Gospel of John for the first time, they're made, it's made up of people who had never seen Jesus, yet alone the resurrected Jesus for themselves. These are people throughout the Roman Empire, not localized. These are Romans or Corinthians or, or, or those from Thessalonica, Athenians that are reading this gospel. They've never seen Jesus for themselves, yet alone seen the resurrected body for themselves. This is who John is writing to. In fact, when you examine the gospel accounts, almost every one of the early believers had originally been skeptics until they saw the resurrected Jesus for themselves. We'll see this. Thomas, I won't believe until, you know, I need to see Jesus. Knowing this was the dynamic, again, writing years later, John, he's wanting to articulate something very important, somewhat relatable, actually. He's wanting his audience to know that the empty tomb and the missing body had been enough evidence for him to be convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he's articulating here. He's saying, I believe before I saw Jesus. I didn't need to see Jesus to believe. I had enough evidence just in the garden tomb alone. John is clear that he believed even before a personal encounter with a resurrected Lord. Understand, the resurrection of Jesus, it's true, that it might, be, it might be, it probably is, the most extreme claim of human history. But note, it's one of the most reliable claims. The Bible. The Bible concedes the fact that no one actually saw or witnessed Jesus rise from the dead. No one was in the tomb to see the body. Boom. Didn't happen. In fact, we mentioned it last Sunday, but the rolling away of the stone was not designed to let Jesus out is allowed to let humanity peer in that Jesus had risen from the dead. See, there's no debating the reality that something occurred following the death of Jesus that indeed changed the course of human history. And this is where John's testimony, 
standing inside an empty tomb is so important for you and I. You see, there is more than enough evidence to see and believe concerning the resurrection of Jesus than personally encountering his actual glorified body. In John's specific situation, the missing body, the presentation of the burial clothes, that was more than enough evidence. Resurrection was the only conclusion that made any sense. For you and I, we have much more than that that we can hang our faith upon. We'll get to that in the coming weeks. Though Peter and John, they leave, they head home. Mary, we're told, stays behind. John continues, verse 11, But Mary stood outside the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. I love Mary. Mary Magdalene. You know, in almost every single instance that you read of an angel appearing to a human being, the first words out of the angel's mouth, you know what they are? Do not be afraid. I bring you great tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you this day a child will be born. Do not, and why is it always do not be afraid? Because 99 times out of 100, you're terrified in the presence of an angel. Mary? Eh. Now keep in mind, she had been demonically possessed. Seven demons. She was very familiar with the supernatural. She's like, angels, I, you know, I was possessed. I know the demon thing. I'm really not that impressed with you. She just, I love her, just her, as a matter of fact, kind of reactions here. Having a conversation with angels like she normally did. Now, aside from a group of women, again, who had already been there, already gotten a pronouncement, and 16 Roman soldiers who were petrified in fear but overheard, the incredible news that Jesus had risen. At this point, still, almost everyone else is oblivious to what's really taken place this morning. Peter's still trying to work up a plausible theory to explain the linen clothes, the missing body. John, he has enough evidence. He's a believer, but he hasn't seen anything. Poor Mary Magdalene. She is still convinced that Jesus' body has been stolen, has been taken. We, we don't know how long she stands outside of the tomb, but she's weeping. Again, Peter and John, miserable comforters, <laughs> they left her. And then even when the two angels appear, have this dialogue, Mary's undeterred in her grief. She's unmoved by their appearance. All Mary Magdalene cares about is finding out where Jesus, and no, she says, my Lord, her Lord, had been taken. Verse 14, now when Mary had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Now he adds something that the angels haven't. Whom are you seeking? She, though, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. <laughs> Again, I love this woman. It took two men to remove him from the cross and get him to the tomb. Pack his body with all the spices. 
Mary's no concern for this whatsoever. You just tell me where he is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take his body, throw it over my shoulder, and bring it back to where it's supposed to be. Because Mary's a hoss. Now, what's interesting about the statement, look at it again, the, kind of the flow of it. She saw Jesus standing there, did not know it was Jesus, supposing him to be the gardener. What's more is the fact that, that Mary even fails to recognize his voice. Some have argued that Mary failed to recognize Jesus because of her immense grief. Again, she's weeping. The tears, it just, it, she, just, she was disoriented. She just couldn't tell at first that this was actually Jesus. It was her grief, her tears. She couldn't see through the pain. The problem, though, with that theory is the fact that two non-weeping disciples who are on the road to Emmaus also failed to recognize Jesus after spending an afternoon with him. We'll find that in Luke 24. Consider that the essence of Jesus' resurrection was made evidence by the fact his earthly physical body that had been lying in the tomb for three days literally rose to everlasting life and heavenly glory. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, his corruptible put on incorruption. Case in point, Jesus' body was missing. Jesus didn't rise spiritually. He rose physically. His body was part of the resurrection. If not, what happened to the body? Now, following his resurrection, Jesus has a body that looks to be completely normal. In fact, Mary's conclusion, right? He's the gardener. Again, the first Easter morning, Jesus is wearing jeans and a t-shirt. His body's clothed. I find that interesting. Where did he get the clothes? You know? Not told in the text. I, I'm curious. He's clothed. We'll see that his body would be able to consume food. He could eat. Also, he could be touched. He was physical. But the same body could also teleport through space, <laughs> appear, disappear, fly. Beyond this, the resurrected Jesus could speak, be spoken to, possessed a full knowledge of all the human relationships he had before death. So why is it that people struggled to recognize him, like Mary? Now there are those who will point to a passage like this as, as being the evidence that our heavenly bodies will look nothing like our earthly bodies. Aside from the fact that that really doesn't make a lot of sense, logically, or have any biblical basis. If you tend to take one look at those who present such a theory, you'll understand why their perspective is very important to them. You can read that later and you'll get the joke. You see, the better explanation is that Jesus was probably hard to recognize because he still bore the marks of crucifixion. It's, a, it's a, actually a heavy thought. But Jesus wasn't recognized by Mary, by these disciples on the road to Emmaus, because of his physical disfigurement, because of crucifixion. You see, that's the most plausible reason that those who knew him well like Mary, 
had a hard time recognizing him immediately in the moment. You know, in his heavenly vision of the future throne room of God, John will later describe Jesus, his physical appearance, in Revelation 5 or 6, no doubt using some figurative language, but he's still painting a picture for us. He describes Jesus as a lamb as though it had been slaughtered. So picture a lamb, then butcher it. That's the imagery that John is trying to get us to associate with the physical appearance of Jesus. Aside from this, we have evidence that he still bore scars. In Luke 24, verse 39, Jesus will instruct his disciples. Like They're thinking they're seeing a ghost when Jesus appears. And he's like, guys, behold my hands and my feet. Why would you do that if there wasn't something significant to it? He'll even point to his side. He says, it's me, guys. Handle me. See. Does a spirit have flesh and bones as you see I have? It's been said. The only man-made thing in heaven will be the scars in Jesus' hands and feet. And though I agree with this statement, I also have a feeling, though, that the scars that Jesus bore for our sin will not be restricted to just his hands and his feet and his side. I think it's more total than that. For all of eternity, the full scars of Jesus, the scars on his his face, his neck, his legs, aside from his hands and feet, his scars. For all of eternity, we will look upon the scars of Jesus, and those scars will always stand as a stark reminder as to the consequences of our sin. Grace, free for us, but it cost him dearly. But those scars will also stand as a trophy of the magnitude of his love for us. And how amazing his grace really is. Verse 16, and Jesus said, Mary. And she turned and she said to him, Rabboni, which is translated teacher. Between that period and Jesus, there's a a gap of time. I don't know how long. Where through her tears, she grabs hold. I mean, we're not talking even, I mean, we're talking about kung fu grip, a bear hug of the highest order. Jesus, at some point, he says to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to my Father. But, Mary, go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord. It It appears, again, harmonizing that she comes with the other ladies. They all kind of catch up together. They show up to the disciples. They recount their stories. Mary adds what Jesus had spoken to her, that he had spoken these things to her. Not to sound like a broken record, but while John saw the burial clothes and believed, 
those things were not enough to stir Mary from her despair. Same scene, she witnessed, not the same faith. But what an amazing moment it must have been like for this grieving woman to hear her name roll off the tongue of familiar lips. They've already talked. But when Jesus says, Mary, the tone, it had to have been personal. She recognized it. No one says my name like that. Now, our text implies that two things immediately happen. She cries out, Rabboni. And then, as mentioned, she grabs hold of Jesus with a death grip. She's lost him once. He's not getting away again. In the scriptures, this title that Mary uses here, Rabboni, it's only used on only one other occasion in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, Mark chapter 10 Blind Bartimaeus, just a few days before this, uses the same title for Jesus. The word rabbi in the Hebrew, it meant teacher. There's a lot of debate, speculation about rabboni. Most just believe that it adds a real personal flair to the term. You would translate it as my rabbi, my teacher. Personalizes it. You should note that whether rabboni or rabbi... This will be the last time such a term is used for Jesus by his disciples. From this point forward, Lord will be the title used. Again, I wonder how long the moment lasted before Jesus says, Mary, do not cling to me. Literally, Mary, it's time to let go. Understandably, she doesn't want to release him, but why does Jesus want her to let go? He had a task for her. There was a plan. There was a purpose. Jesus instructs Mary, look at it again, go to my brethren. And then he gives her a specific message for the brethren that he's ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. One of the main reasons that John documents this particular story of Mary Magdalene being the first to encounter the resurrected Jesus is what it articulates to all Jesus' disciples. Mary of Magdala, before encountering Jesus, had been possessed, out of her mind, filled with seven demons. We're not given the actual account of the moment, but she's liberated. She's freed. And yet here she is. And the grand plan of God, with such a background, being chosen as the first witness and messenger of the resurrected Jesus. How amazing it is to consider that whatever your past may be, it doesn't disqualify you from being used by Jesus as as a witness and a messenger. It should also be pointed out the incredible grace and what Mary want and what Jesus wants Mary to share with these disciples. He calls them his brethren. Now, don't forget who these guys are. They're the same group who's abandoned him, who ran from him, who deserted him in his time of need. He doesn't even call them disciples. He uses this warm term of endearment. My brethren, my brothers, 
Jesus doesn't hold a grudge. At this point, they're now more than followers, more than they are his brothers. Do you know that this morning, that your brother is Jesus? He is your brother. The God-man is your brother. As, aside from this, Jesus, through Mary, is articulating. He says, my God, your God. My Father, your Father. It would appear in this statement that something cosmic's occurred. The statement's weighty. And the best way I can try to articulate what it means is that it seems as though something lost in Eden has now been restored once and for all. Do you think it's an accident that we find such a declaration being made of Jesus from none other than a garden? In Genesis 3, we have the Garden of Eden. The first sinless man, Adam, he made a choice to rebel against God. In that garden, what happened? Adam died, spiritually. For you know the wages of sin, well, it's death. And then the next garden is the Garden of Gethsemane where again we find a second sinless man, not Adam, but Jesus, not rebelling against God, but choosing to surrender himself to the will of God. Much the same way, though, in that garden, Jesus is unjustly chosen to die for the sins of the world. What an amazing thing that the resurrection of Jesus occurs in another garden. You think that's an accident? Adam died in a garden because of his sin. A dead Jesus was laid in a garden because of Adam's sin. And yet what a beautiful picture it is that Jesus rose from death to life from a garden tomb, finally conquering the power of death, freeing us all from the wages of our sin. Please note, absolutely everything about your spiritual life centers upon the resurrection of Jesus. You can believe that Jesus remains dead, or you can believe that he, that he rose, that he's alive right now. You can view the empty tomb as either emblematic of the greatest con that has ever been devised, or you can see it as evidence of the greatest event in all of human history. This morning, you have two choices. You can believe I'm senile for believing in an actual resurrection of Jesus, or you can willingly concede you're choosing to miss out on the most radical occurrence that's ever taken place. Keep in mind, the reason that your conclusion concerning Jesus' resurrection is so vitally important, well, it really boils down to the fact that Jesus intentionally and deliberately placed the validity of everything He said and everything He did on this one singular event taking place rising on the third day. Friend, if Jesus didn't rise, if Jesus remains dead today, he would be nothing more than a proven liar, and everything he said would be forever questionable. Beyond this, if Jesus is dead, his claim to be God would be lunacy, delusional, his work on the cross inadequate. Any hope that you and I have for life after the grave what well, can't be found in Jesus, it's implausible. 
And there is no room for a third option when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. He either did or he didn't. He's dead and completely discredited, or he's alive, and everything he said about himself is completely validated. In his book, The Reason for God, Belief in the Age of Skepticism, pastor, author, Timothy Keller, he put it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is whether or not is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And consider this morning the implications that stem from the resurrection of Jesus. Since Jesus rose from the dead, friend, you can trust that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is God incarnate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, because who dies and comes back to life? It's been said the empty tomb as an enduring symbol of the resurrection is the ultimate representation of Jesus' claim to be God. Beyond that, since Jesus rose from the dead, you can trust that what he said is true. That in him is found salvation, restoration, forgiveness, regeneration, power, strength, love, peace, and joy that you don't have to remain as you are, but he can change you from the inside out. That he wants to give you life today and forever. If Jesus rose from the dead, these words are true, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, since Jesus rose from the dead, you can trust, ultimately, that he finished what he came to accomplish. Because of the resurrection, you can be confident that the payment of sin has been satisfied. You can be confident that you have an advocate in heaven, that you have access to the Father, that death is not the end of your story. Through the resurrection, you have more than hope. You have a blessed assurance. Lots of people have spoken about the afterlife. No one has spoken about the afterlife from the vantage point of being there and coming back. In closing, I want to get back to Mary Magdalene, kind of the central character of of this passage. Mary's day began, think about it, it began in complete desperation. Mary was living in the midst of a terrible tragedy. She had come to the garden that morning, not expecting resurrection, not expecting Jesus. She came looking for the body of Jesus, a dead Jesus. For Mary, chapter 19, indeed, the curtains had closed and the lights had dimmed. For Mary, she's saying, everyone leave. Story's over. He's dead. Mary had zero anticipation of resurrection that Sunday morning. In fact, the very last thing she would have ever expected in her wildest imaginations was to hear that morning in front of that tomb her name uttered by Jesus. Just when things couldn't have gotten any more depressing for Mary this morning, they unexpectedly, well, they take a turn for the worse, don't they? Not only is Jesus dead, 
But as she's making her way through the garden to the tomb, she discovers that the stone's been rolled away. Jesus is dead, but now she's overwhelmed by the thought that someone has callously stolen his body, depriving her of that final opportunity to, to, to give her respects. How could this have happened? From bad to worse, Mary's mourning. What's interesting to me, as I've contemplated Mary's experience, it's how her perspective on what had occurred was so off base. Like Mary saw an empty tomb. Mary's convinced the body had been stolen, but never once does Mary consider the possibility of an alternative, that Jesus had risen from the dead. Think of it this way. What she saw with her physical eye, that was indeed true. The body was gone. The stone rolled away. What she saw with her physical eye appeared true, but the conclusion she reached from what she saw wasn't true at all. It was way off, actually. <laughs> Even when Jesus, who Mary incorrectly, again, believes to be the gardener, asks her, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? She, her reply, if you've taken him, wherever you've taken him, just bring me, let me have the body, let's be done with this. Mary is so convinced. Jesus is dead, the body's stolen. Don't miss this. That she fails to see the living Jesus standing right in front of her. <laughs> How incredible that while Mary was seeking a dead Jesus, a living Jesus was seeking her. Friend, I hope you take courage this morning knowing that Jesus was not only aware of Mary's despair, but he specifically sought her out to reveal himself to her. And I mention, I mention this because if you find yourself in a situation where you don't know where Jesus is. And your perspective has been restricted and limited to only what you can see in front of you, and it's dark, and it's depressive. Please know, well, well really two things. Your perspective on your circumstances might be off and might be wrong. And secondly, Jesus might be much closer than you could ever imagine. It's been said, there are some things dry eyes can never see. In the middle of her despair, when all hope seemed lost, through her weeping, her tears, Mary would not only see Jesus but she would ultimately come to see Jesus in a way she had never seen him before in resurrected glory. Mary had been searching for a dead Jesus. By the end of her experience, she is grabbing hold of the risen Lord. And that's the promise for you as well. So Father, Lord, we just let this cool.